1: Welcome to tonight's Meet the Author with Kate Grenville and Marion Halligan. I'm Colin Steele, convener of the Canberra Times, meet, ANU Meet the Author events. First of all, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past and present. Usual housekeeping, please ensure that all mobile phones are switched off, and I should like to especially thank Jane Novak and Text Publishing for facilitating tonight's event. Our next Meet the Author event is on May the 12th, where we'll have Michael Cooney speaking on the Gillard Project, his account of three years as Julia Gillard's speechwriter. And then in June, look out for three international speakers. There's one mobile going. (laughs) Uh, In June, we'll have three international speakers from the Sydney Writers' Festival coming, so that will appear on the ANU events and in the usual forums. After tonight's conversation between Kate Grenville and Marion Halligan there'll be a question period with Kate. And please raise your hand when you wish to ask a question and we'll bring a microphone to either side, Catherine and I. Uh, Book signings will be down here for those who still haven't had their book signed but there'll still be plenty of books to be bought and to be signed at the end. Um, The vote of thanks at 7.25 will be given by Gia Metherill, the former literary editor of the Canberra Times. Kate Grenville, of course, is one of Australia's most celebrated writers and her best-selling novel The Secret River received the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Miles Franklin, and a TV mini-series based on the novel will be broadcast in later in 2015. When Kate's mother, Nance Russell, died in 2002, she left behind in Kate's words, quote, masses of fragments of memoirs, which Kate has skilfully woven into a factional biographical narrative. One Life is an act of great imaginative sympathy and a deeply moving homage to her mother, and also provides an illuminating window into Australia's social history in the 20th century. Canberra author Marion Halligan is also one of Australia's best-known literary figures. And Marion's own book, Goodbye Sweetheart, has recently come out, and we're very grateful for Marion in the midst of her own publicity commitments to be able to be in conversation with her longtime friend, Kate Grenville, tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Craig Grenville and Marion Halligan. Well,
2: it's a great pleasure for me to have a a chance to talk in this way to Kate. Um, There was a lovely, what, three years, four years, when Kate was living in Canberra in Lynham with chooks and stuff, which was rather good. And um, I enjoyed that period of time. Now she's back in Sydney, but she's paying us a visit again. Now, well, We'll start off with a little reading um, from this book, One Life, the story of Kate's mother, which I'm sure you all know quite a lot about since you're here. But it'll be great to have a bit read by Kate, I think. So would you like me to read
3: the bit that you mentioned at the beginning? Or the bit that I read?
2: read the bit that you're going to read, and then maybe we'll read that other bit, which is only a paragraph. <laughs>
3: way to start. While I'm dithering, could I just say that um, Marion's books aren't for sale tonight, but can I urge you to all go and buy them? <laughs> <laughs> and three, yes. Here we go. Okay. Uh, my mother was a, was an apprentice pharmacist in 1930 at the Enmore Pharmacy in Sydney. And she describes it as a kind of slavery. Uh, it was the beginning of the depression, as you would know. And in any case, there were no protections of any kind for people who worked, particularly not apprentices. So there were tough times. So this is just a tiny flavour of her extremely difficult apprenticeship. Between Monday and Friday, Nance went to lectures at the university in the mornings and got to the shop at one o'clock in the afternoon. She was there until seven or eight at night. There was another pharmacy next door and they played the game of who could stay open longer. On Saturday and Sunday she had to be at the shop at 9 in the morning, both days. At 1 o'clock each day she could go home, but each day she had to be back again at 6 and stay until whenever the shop closed. On Saturdays that was often 10 o'clock at night. There was no morning of the week when she could sleep in. No complete day was her own, not even a full afternoon. Her life before pharmacy seemed a manned, luxuriousness of time. Moira was the apprentice she was replacing. She'd done her finals, but she was staying on for a week to show Nance the ropes. At the end of each day, they went over the dockets together. Some of the things on the dockets were a mystery to Nance, and finally she said, What are these FL things? <laughs> oh, Nance, keep your voice down for heaven's sake, Moira said, and jerked her head to tell Nance to follow her into the back room. Look, she said, they're French letters, you know what not know about them. <laughs> no, well, they go over the fellow's willy. stop the babies coming. <laughs> Moira was a coarser sort of person, though not when the boss, Mr Stevens, was about. Nance felt like an innocent fool, but at least now she understood about the young men who had come in expecting to be served by Mr Stevens, and got her or Moira instead. They'd stammer at a request for a comb or a pair of shoelaces, <laughs> blushing, mumbling, spilling their change. Later she'd see them lurking outside, and when Mr. Stevens was behind the counter again, they'd come in. They'd wall themselves off from the women with their shoulders and murmur together. The fellows are awkward about coming in and asking, Moira said. Needlessly, in my view, I like a fellow with a French letter in his back pocket. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that reminds me of when I first came to live in Canberra um, or when I was first married in Canberra in the very early 60s and I used to go to the chemist to get the pill and they'd be young men trying to buy french letters <laughs> with equal embarrassment it's one of those things that goes on it's it's apparent from your account of your mother you don't you don't spell it out very openly but she was very clever wasn't she she I think she, was. she was to have um i mean she when she got to go she she um, she was boarded out in a, with some people in Tamora, and then she was at a convent, which was pretty awful, and she amused herself with trying to get the girls to prove that God existed, which they couldn't. And, um, but then she got to go to St George Girls High School, which was a selective school, and she absolutely flourished there, didn't she? Hmm.
3: She did. You know, one of the things... This sounds so boring, but the history of public education in Australia is actually a fascinating subject, and it intersects with lives like my family's. Everybody in every generation of my family that we know about, that is going back to 1806, was illiterate, until my grandmother's generation, my mother's mother, uh, because the Public Instruction Act came in in 1880. When my mother was born, though, there were only six government high schools in the whole of New South Wales, And all but one of them were in Sydney. That one was at Mainland. So if you lived out of Sydney, uh, there was no geographic way of getting to high school. You also, all high schools, were selective in those days. You had to pass an entrance to high school exam, and you had to do extremely well. All of this, I'm sorry, I could become a real soapboxer about public education. Uh, But the point is, yes, she was clever. And I think like a lot of women of her generation, um, well, she managed to scramble a basic education, she did the leaving, which was very unusual for a woman born in 1912. I think yeah. of all the other women just as intelligent as my mother. Yeah, yeah. Many grandmothers of you, probably.
2: Yeah. Well, you remarked that um, there kept being empty desks at school in Tamworth as as the pupils turned 14. They left. They didn't stay. Well,
3: education yeah education was wasted on a girl.
2: Oh, yes. Well, that was the case, really. I mean, I had to convince my father that um, educating me was worthwhile. He said, no, oh, you'll just get married and have children. Why anybody thought it was a good idea to have uneducated mothers of children, I don't know. But, um, but it was very familiar to me, that story of, um, of the clever teachers who were, of course, all unmarried. And had they got married, would have been thrown out. Um, when I was at school actually at high school for the first time we had teachers who were called Mrs which was pretty unusual (laughs) although in kindergarten I had a teacher called Mrs but I think she was a widow and very sour with it let me tell you (laughs) so um, but your mother um, got herself into pharmacy Mm -hmm. which was a very interesting thing to do of course she'd have liked to be a teacher wouldn't she
3: yes I mean her passion at high school was was poetry English literature but in particular poetry uh, she knew every line of Macbeth as they used to in the old days when you did the leaving, you did a Shakespeare play and you knew it inside out. She also knew, I think, probably every poem, every short poem anyway, of Keats and many other poems. So that she went through life with this kind of penumbra of literature around her. And, you know, if she glanced out the window and saw the beautiful autumn leaves in Canberra, she would immediately say, ah, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. <laughs> And unlike me, she would know the other 13 lines. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, yes. So she would have loved to have become a teacher of English and history, she told me. But her mother, who was a strange, frustrated teacher herself, in fact, and a sourpuss, said to her, no, you'll you, you become a teacher over my dead body. I'm going to make you do pharmacy. Now, Mum didn't want to do pharmacy, but we didn't go against Dolly, that's my grandmother's name, She was a ferocious woman. In fact, mum said she had a a touch of craziness about her. Yeah. Which may have been so, because my grandmother was probably just as intelligent as my mum Yeah. And completely blocked in every way, shape or form to have a healthy life. So no wonder she was so bitter. Anyway, mum did do pharmacy, and although she hated it at the time, It opened up opportunities for her which would never have happened otherwise. Mm. So it was a bit of a fluke,
2: really. But it was kind of curiously mean of your grandmother to block your mother doing what she'd have loved to do, instead of helping her to do it, which is, which is something that mothers do sometimes. But I find it curious.
3: Look, I thought a lot about it, because Mum felt very bitter about it, and she felt that her mother was revisiting on her the frustration that she felt. But when I thought about it and did some research about pharmacy and teaching as careers for a woman, I began to wonder if there was something else going on. As a teacher, as you said, um, if you got married as a teacher, you had to immediately leave the public service. you could be teach a teacher in private school. You couldn't be a married woman and a public servant beyond a certain level, until I think... The Second World War, someone in this audience probably knows, but it was surprisingly mm. recent. Women were paid half a man's wage on the assumption that they didn't need that they were never the breadwinner. Some assumption. Some assumption. Yes. Um, and teaching in those days was not a particularly high, particularly for a woman who generally taught at a lower level, like go, was not a particularly statusy profession. Whereas what I discovered is that To be a pharmacist in the 1920s, say, when Dolly would have known about it, was to be the next best thing to the doctor. In the country town, you were often in place of the doctor, everybody called you doctor, you wore a white coat. And in fact, in my research, I found the, uh, um, the, the pharmaceutical society board newsletter or something for 1929. One of the advices it gave to new pharmacists was this. If a customer comes in and says, are you Dr. Jones? You reply, my name is Jones. <laughs> <laughs> so I, paradoxically, my grandmother was actually hoping for something better yes. than Man was hoping for for herself. Uh-huh.
2: And as you pointed out, in a way, your, your mother was um, a kind of example of the chances and possibilities that were open to a, a woman and the things that went wrong. I mean, she had her own pharmacy and it was brilliant, but it was scuppered mm-hmm. by the lack of childcare. Yeah, that's right.
3: She actually had two pharmacies. My father was a, an interesting variegated sort of fellow, um, but there were many years, to cut a long story short, well he was a solicitor who decided to become the Lenin of Australia, so he therefore had to become a proletarian. He was a Trotsky-like revolutionary, aka Comrade Roberts, uh, so he became a, had to become a proletarian because you can't lead the revolution from behind a solicitor's desk. <laughs> you have to be what he always called a grimy-handed toiler, I suppose it's a quote from March or something. Um, Anyway, it meant that there wasn't much money around for a long time after they married. And so mum started two uh, pharmacy businesses, uh, several years apart, hugely successful. And in each case, what stopped her going on with them was the complete lack of childcare and the complete lack of support from her husband and this whole society. The notion of not just a woman working, not just a woman owning her own business, but the mother of young children, my, my older brothers having her own business. It was,
2: it was yeah. like being a Martian. Yeah. And, of course, her mother said she'd help, but then mm. dipped out, yeah. <laughs> which was... Um, and you could understand. The, the thing is, you do enable us to understand everybody's point of view in this. You don't tell us what to think, but you show us people doing things, and we do come to understand them. I was very interested in the... Um, Oh, the opening paragraph where you get on to the narrative. Um, No, it's page... Page nine. Um, The first memory was of crying too much, and a father takes her out and dips her um, into a horse trough full of icy water. And um, that's sort of in the back block somewhere. What was the name of the place? Gunnedah. And... um, You don't sort of explain it or say why, because you seem to be quite a loving father, Mm. but it is a pretty
3: difficult thing to do. children when I was growing up were not considered to have any rights at all. Less than a dog, probably. Children had to be... um, they, were, they had to do what their parents wanted and to be grateful for even having been born. <laughs> so, my grandfather was quite a kindly man in a rough and ready sort of way. He was, a, he was a, an agricultural labourer, basically. He was a shearer and a plougher and fencer. And he was, at this stage, um, a sharecropper, in other words, a tenant farmer. He didn't own the land, but he farmed it. So, I think if she cried if she and cried and cried and didn't stop, I mean, she did say it was only the one time. It's
2: just that she remembered. <laughs> it did sound a bit as though she didn't. She stopped crying as well. <laughs> Could perhaps have worked very efficiently, yes. but um, yes, I was. I was quite. Um, I was quite intrigued by that story, and and I think you do that with a number of your stories. You you offer them, but you don't. You don't say oh wasn't it a terrible thing to do what a shocking thing how could he have done that you don't you don't offer any opinions on it which i, I found a very attractive um, um, way of reading. Um, the thing that comes out of course um, is how arbitrary life is and how and how children don't have any control at all. Nance doesn't. Nance has left, she's, she's sent off to her Auntie Rose to live and she loves her Auntie Rose and her Auntie Rose loves her and she has a really good time and she would like to stay there but her mother wants her back so she has to go back. So, I mean, I suppose children don't often have much control, but I think today's children let you know very clearly what they want and what they don't want, and you're probably a bit more inclined to do
3: it. Yes, I mean, the streets are full of parents kneeling down to say to their little darling, you know, would you like the blue one or the red one? Yes, exactly. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. It, it, was a, it was a very neglected child, and the mum says it at one stage in her memoirs, these days we would call it neglected, if not abused, a, a child treated like that. And I think a lot of people would have been damaged beyond repair by that kind of emotional, um, she really got nothing emotional from her parents and felt unloved, and in fact her father told her, in you know, words of one syllable, that she was not wanted, she was an accident. So many people mm-hmm. would have been destroyed, I think, by yeah. that, psychologically. So the the great mystery to which I have no answer, really, is why some people have the resilience to turn that to good account in a way, and say, well, okay, no one's going to be looking after me. I'm going to make my own <laughs> luck yeah. in a way. Yeah. For some reason, she was one of those people, rather than I suspect I would have just gone under. Well, yeah,
2: mind you, we did have a much softer childhood than oh. she had. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is the thing that I, I was thinking in fact that what this book is about is love mm-hmm. and how some people manage it and some people don't and, and Dolly although she wanted Nance back mm-hmm. didn't offer any love and when Nance in fact said when there was clearly some disaster happening because I think because um, her father was something of a philanderer Mm -hmm. and she said, more or less, don't worry, Mum, you've got us. And Mum said, you children don't matter. You don't matter at all. Um, And your mother didn't think that. She wrote that lovely letter that you quote at the end um, saying that the best thing she'd ever done was, was... was have her children and in a way it's about the learning of love I think that's what this book is about and how some people do it and can do it and some people can't
3: it's very interesting because when you're writing a book you often don't you don't know what you're writing you about <laughs> afterwards. Yes. somebody insightful says of course what this book's actually about is X, you're absolutely right <laughs> <laughs> and actually it's like, I <laughs> yeah,
2: well, I was sort of looking at it um, for the second time. And um, um, and I thought, yeah, um, t- today, you know, because I read it last week sort of thing. But I was looking at it today and I thought, yeah, that's what it's about. And... Um, and when she has the little pieces of blue and white china or coloured china that she gets from the back of the pub and she calls them chainies, which is an interesting word. I've never heard that before. And... Oh, good. Well, tell us about that in a minute. Because when she wants to... When a mother wants a back, she thinks, I'll take these, and then she thinks, no, I won't. Um, I'll, I'll hide them in a cleft in the rock and uh, they'll be there when I come back. And uh, Because if I take them home, my mother will just throw them away.
3: Yes, that's absolutely right. The thing about Mum's love is that she said to me several times, my parents' marriage was miserable and their parents' marriage was miserable. So there's a chain, in fact, probably all the way back to Solomon Wiseman, which is as far back as the family stories went, he is supposed to have actually um, killed his first wife by throwing her over the balcony. that's probably not a gladly happy marriage. (laughs) She said, I'm going to break that cycle of unhappy parents having unhappy children. She said that to me many times in the context of her own unhappy marriage with my father, mostly unhappy. She said, I'm going to break that cycle. I'm going to make sure that you children get that love and get that proper family life so that, you know, it can start again for you, lot, and it succeeded. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. But Chinese I never knew. She said, you know, we collected those little bits of broken china. Have any of you heard of the word Chinese? It's a meaning a little shard of broken china. OK. Nor had I until I heard Mum say it. And she had to explain to me what they were. And I said to her, Chinese where does the word come from? Well, a couple of years ago, I was in Ireland, and I heard uh-huh. somebody say the word Chinese, we would say it. And it's the word Chinese.
2: Oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Isn't that good? <laughs> ah. ah, Well, it was actually very clever of your mother to break that cycle because, well, poor old Dolly tried. She tried not to marry the man she, a mother obliged her to marry. Um, and I was quite interested... Um, that she failed to to not marry him sort of thing.
3: It was tough. I mean, Do- Dolly was born in 1880, so, you know, no rights at all, no means of learning earning She wanted to become a teacher, but her father said, you won't become a teacher because that will shame me or make it look as if I'm not adequate as a breadwinner. I mean, what a philosophy that is. No woman in my family must work because it will shame me. Yeah. How terrible.
2: So it says, I can't afford to keep you. Yeah.
3: So my mother, my grandmother, kept running away. She was my... The man she wanted, the man her parents wanted her to marry, ended up being my grandfather, Um, but she fell in love with another guy who was Catholic. And, of course, my parents were not Catholic. And this was in those days. Some of you would probably have seen nods around him. It's yeah. hard to imagine, isn't it? It the is, yes. The that divided our culture between Catholic and Protestant. But you could not marry. And you did not, as my mother put it, turn. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. another planet,
2: isn't it? It is totally another planet, yeah. It's,
3: when my son read this, who's 29, he, that was his first remark. He said, look, what amazes me is this is like a foreign country, utterly foreign. Yeah. And yet this woman was my granny, who I remember very well. Yeah. You know, our, our lives, this is not ancient
2: Yeah, history. no. Well, I'm ten years older than you, and I remember... I remember... You couldn't, a Protestant and a Catholic could marry, but oh, was it ever hedged around with the restrictions and usually the Protestant had to promise to bring the children up Catholic and you couldn't get married in front of the high altar and there were all sorts of things. It was just a much better idea not to do it, really. Um, and when you think of it, hmm, things have changed quite a lot and for the better. Not not enough,
3: but... You know, I was probably about uh, well, I think I University in my twenties before I went into a Catholic church, I had been so kind of, uh, in spite of my mother not religious or caring somehow I'd absorbed this yeah. fear that if I went in there, I'd somehow be grabbed. <laughs> snuck I listened to the Baptist service so I thought oh, I must
2: be in the wrong church this is exactly like <laughs> <laughs> yes church that's the weird thing yeah. isn't she it the same story, yes. of <laughs> yeah. and of course your mother was sort of stuck in these Catholic situations where I think she often thought she'd have liked to be Catholic and um, be kind of posher like her cousins and things but I love that image where you had the, the statue of the Virgin Mary and wherever you Stood, stood she didn't look at you <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really good even though you know the sort of eternal mother isn't yes. looking at you yes. <laughs> seems a bit
3: hard well, yeah it's another of those strange things because mum used to say my mother meaning her, my grandmother Dolly was so ferociously anti-Catholic because her happiness had been blighted by the fact that she was not allowed to marry Jim Daly the Catholic um, she, mum would say, why on earth did my mother keep sending me to convent several times? <laughs> and she felt again that it was part of this perverse, maybe, cruelty in her mother. But I began, as I researched public education again, um, don't get me started on public education. Uh, it's but very I, interesting. Actually, at that time, especially for a girl, if you wanted a decent education for your child, actually, the local convent was often the best place because, you know, when... There were no high schools, very few. So I think it was nothing to do with uh, the, Catholic, the Catholic thing, but mum, my grandmother actually wanted the best for my mother. I'm stumbling over this because I'm not at all sure about this, I'm guessing, as I have to guess a great deal of things.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, would you like to read the little bit on page two? My mother wasn't the sort of person. Um, Yeah, Yeah, because that's a a lovely bit.
3: Down
2: to where? Oh, how far? Oh, the end of the next paragraph, paragraph, I I think, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a conversation. We don't write our conversations down before we have them. Don't you? (laughs) No, (laughs) not mostly. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds a bit like, yes, um, I'm going to have a conversation, with. we have to talk. <laughs>
3: um, look, it took me about eight years to write this book from my mother's fragments of memoirs, and during that whole time, every day, I would say to myself, of course, I find my mother fascinating, but why shouldn't anybody else? And it was my brother, my wonderful brother, who many of you in this room know, because he uh, did an economics uh, degree here at ANU. I showed him an early compilation of marks things and she, and he said, this is like A.B. faces a fortunate life, except that it's a woman's story, that makes it even rarer. And all through those eight years, every time I gave up, he'd say, look, this is a great story, it must be told. So I, I really owe this book to him, so thank you, Steve. And this is, this is a tiny bit about my... My final reason why I could justify it to myself, writing a book about your mother, which is a kind of indulgent thing to do. My mother wasn't the sort of person biographies are usually written about. She wasn't famous, had no public life beyond one letter published in the Sydney Morning Herald. It's a wonderful letter, it's published in the, in the book. Um, it's about prunes. You know? <laughs> 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 She did nothing that would ever make the history books. Just the same, I think her story is worth telling. Not many voices like hers are heard. People of her social class, she was the daughter of a rural working class couple who became pubkeepers hardly ever left any record of what they felt and thought and did. They often believed their lives weren't important enough to write down and in many cases they lacked the literacy and the leisure time to do so. As a result, our picture of the past is skewed towards the top lot. I love that bit. (laughs) Their written documents are the basis for our histories. And when you think about it, that's right. It's what the top lot happened to write down. They're the only (coughs) real bits of evidence for history. The nice things they owned fill our museums, all those christening robes. Their sonnets and novels shape our imaginations. In the bits and pieces of my mother's written memories, I had a first-hand account of a world much left out of all those histories <coughs> and museums, and about which no sonnets, as far as I know. <laughs>
2: hmm. I, yeah, well, that's on page two, so you get that quite early on, and I thought that was um, very important, which is why I wanted um, get, uh, Kate to read it. Um, mm. Now, you you said, um, well, you say in the book, but you also said just now that you're going to do it quite a lot in your mother's voice, but as you did more drafts, you kind of took her voice out to an extent, although I think you echo it a bit, don't
3: you? I do. do you not? Why it took me so long? In the beginning, I thought that I could simply type out and glue together all the fragments that I had, and if I put them in chronological order and remove the repetitions, I would have something like a fortunate life, in fact. Well, unfortunately, I think facing might have actually been helped a bit with this narrative. I'm not sure, but I have a feeling that might be the case. Because what mum left really was a sketch towards life, uh, little tiny vignettes, most of which were, even as vignettes, not particularly uh, detailed. They didn't take you inside the experience. They did tell you what happened. And sometimes they would gesture in the direction of the feeling. Oh, it was terrible, she'd say. But they didn't do what I felt needed to be done here. If you were going to do that thing of putting these people back into the record, the interior life, who they were, what their choices were, and what they felt about making those choices. So, with every draft, so in the beginning, so then I thought, okay, I've got to intervene here, and I've got to put some research stuff in, and I've also got to uh, flesh out some of these things. And what I had then was something that was a terrible thing. My mother's voice and my voice battling it out on the package. It was mm-hmm. very awful. There, there didn't seem any way that I could make them sit comfortably together. I, I tried to make my voice invisible. I tried to make it kind of chirpy and Bill Bryson-y. <laughs> oh, thank goodness you didn't. <laughs> Both of them, so finally, um, and with each draft, I picked out more of my mother's words, which was a... Very hard thing to do. I found it fascinating, my mother's words, but I tried it on other people and clearly, this was a case in which, yes, it was my mother and I found it interesting. Which is why there's almost nothing in quotes in this book, but on every page I and mean, in almost every paragraph, there are phrases or words, sometimes called sentences, from her memoirs, even though I haven't acknowledged it. And if you, wanted to, if you want to read a sample of, of what she left me, I've now got a little bit on my website in which I've got a few chunks. So you can sort of see what I've done. The degree to which I've had to invent, I wouldn't want to make any secrets about that. I have had to step in and and intervene. Yeah. Quite often and quite substantially. For example, she says, you know, I met your father at a a political meeting. Uh, I liked him and I thought he liked me, but it was in a coming and going sort of way. Um, We got married in May (laughs) 1940s. Now that's uh, a very compressed version of one of the major decisions of somebody's life, who was going to be my life partner. So I thought, well, at some point my father almost certainly said, you'd better come home and meet the family, Yes. that's what happens. Is there anybody in this room who hasn't at some point been asked to come home and meet the family? It's always a terrible ordeal. <laughs> certainly I've done really it many times. So I drew on my own experience and what I knew of my parents and their families to construct a scene you know, the incredibly awkward lunch, which we might all be familiar with.
2: Yeah, and of course, interestingly, um, if your father had thought about this, he'd have thought that he'd be the one whose story would be written, not your mother.
3: Ah, Well, Dad had already written his story. He's actually published, he actually got to publish his memoirs because he was a Trotskyite revolutionary for about 10 minutes, I think. Um, <laughs> for him, it was like, that's a terrible thing to say, but it wasn't a long time. Dad was a romantic, I think. And yeah. He was attracted to the Lost Court, which Trotskyism certainly was in 1941. Um, so he wrote his memoirs. They're called uh, Recollections of a Trotskyite Boyhood by Hummer Roberts. <laughs>
2: So he Your, his before. parents must have found that a bit weird oh, if they were yes. still around. He didn't publish but, this well I, yeah. fact, his. Well, yeah, because his was anything but a Trotskyite boyhood that he had, wasn't it? Well, mm-hmm. Anyway,
3: I could draw on that because he told you know he, he gave plenty of detail about his own background, so I had that to draw on as well. I was very yeah. Be do that. But because it was, was mum that should have, all her, many of her fragments start with something like, I have always wanted to write a book, it can't be that hard, other people do it all the time. <laughs> But she always peters out after a few minutes and I know that
2: feeling. Well, exactly. (laughs) And then you think, oh, yeah, and you put it off. You put it in the drawer and start another bit. (laughs) It was when I decided that I really had to stop doing that, that I became a writer because I could still be doing it if I hadn't really taken myself to task and said, can't think you're going to be a writer one day one day has to be now or it'll never happen well good on
3: you for doing it well because it's
2: hard isn't it it is hard yes I think you started off earlier than me I always felt envious of you because I thought you started before you had children and gave people the impression that you're a writer first and a mother second when
3: I just squeaked in my first book was 1984
2: and my first child was Ah, 1986 pretty good pretty good yeah yeah, you see, I had a good 20 years. Oh. Child first and then book, yeah. Because it was difficult to um, to say that you... Well, you couldn't say you were being a writer, I didn't think. Um, people thought, oh, yes, yeah, just another housewife, you know, giving herself ears. Um, so if people said you'd say, oh, I do a bit of writing, is what you'd say. But, um, yeah, that's... Um, that is interesting how you, how you make it happen. And sad that your mother didn't make it happen, but good that you made it happen for her. Yes,
3: look, she knew she'd left all these bits and pieces. And, and she tried many things. She tried to write a book about the Etruscans. She wrote many letters. She was like Herzog in this little Bible. Uh, she wrote, for example, a letter to Phil Adams. Um, which I don't have, but I have his replies. Ah, yeah. She wrote to um, <laughs> Harry O'Brien about croquet. He'd made some <laughs> sneering remarks. <about> <laughs> she was a croquet fanatic. She wrote back in no uncertain This is no, you know, timid game for old ladies, she said. You come along and watch. You'll see. Yeah, prove that, I proved that, actually. And she wrote
2: yeah. to letter to the
3: paper. And she yeah. tried, when she went to Uluru in 1959, which is the first stage called Ayers Rock, she came back and she tried very hard to write it up for something like probably a woman's magazine, the Woman's Day or something. Not that she read those, but she knew that's where you could publish that kind of piece. There are many drafts of it where she's trying to define it, and in the end, I think she abandoned it. So she really was, was a writer, okay, and I have yeah. to say, I think a better writer than my father. Yes, that's interesting. had a sense of kind uh, fine style, which is, <laughs> why is that still <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There was
2: some. There's a a very interesting bit for me here. How can I find it? Yes. One Saturday, the paper carried a review of a book by a writer called Elizabeth Taylor. Her dinners burn and her children miss themselves embarrassingly. She has an exact eye for trivial domestic detail. That's what the review says. No book Nance had ever read described burned dinners or mess children. None had even mentioned trivial domestic details, let alone been exact about them. And of course, when her husband comes home, she's burning the dinner, sitting in the kitchen, <laughs> reading Elizabeth Taylor. Um, the book about the world she knew, The Invisible Armies of Disregarded Mothers and Housewives. Elizabeth Taylor proved what Nance had always known, that the quiet domestic dramas of women's lives might be invisible to men, but they mattered just as much. And this is actually one of my hobby horses because I think these quiet domestic dramas are absolutely the stuff of life. I mean, it's... It's, it's birth, it's love, it's marriage, it's betrayal, it's death. It's all of these things. And men do it sometimes, but when men do it, people say, isn't this wonderful? Jonathan Franzen does it, for instance. People fall about. John Banville does it. William Trevor does it. When these people do it, people say, what wonderful universal books. When women do it, people say... Women's books, yes. which is, I think, a problem. I mean, I think probably even Elizabeth Taylor is seen a bit as a as a woman's book, and it's very interesting that your mother kind of picks this up at this point.
3: Well, you know, when I did my BA in 1972, which is many years after Mum discovered Elizabeth Taylor, I wanted to do when I did my honours year, I wanted to do a paper. You know, you have to do a long essay about the works of Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, my supervisor, who was, of course, a man, said, oh, no, you can't possibly do that. She's first of all, I haven't read her.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How about reading her, mate?
3: (laughs) The message was very loud and clear. Who was she, just a middle-class British woman, writing about other middle-class British women? Can't possibly write a dissertation about that. So that's how recently, and I
2: suspect it
3: might even still be... So,
2: I think it probably is. I mean, you probably don't get that sort of review so much, but I tend to get reviews that, that imply, oh, yeah, a women's book. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, The Secret River <laughs> evidently isn't a woman's book, um, so you're okay. But you probably got that sort of review for the idea of perfection I a bit. I
3: certainly did. Yeah. I think Peter Crabbe called it something like a scones and teacup glass. Like
2: that. He was much nicer in the <laughs> reviewing the last one than that. He wasn't being rude. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> if
3: you, you, were, by way of being a pioneer, in fact, in that way. Yeah. The, the dramas revealing these depths. Of yeah. Major emotional,
2: philosophical realities. Yeah. Um, I think trail Well, don't know whether anybody's following the trail, but. <laughs> Jonathan France. <laughs> I'm suddenly looking at the clock and thinking, people are going to be wanting to ask questions, and we I haven't left a lot of time for it.
1: I took okay. about, uh, about 12 minutes. 12 minutes. <laughs> 12 minutes. We've actually had a
2: wonderful time. We've had a good time. That's <laughs> all <laughs> To both of you it was a great conversation um i was interested that kate said her mother always said i wanted to write a book did she live long enough to see you write and publish a book and what was her reaction
3: yes uh, she died while i was writing the secret river so that means all the books before that she read uh, and she was so um very proud of them, loved them particularly *William's story she 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 would have, have seen B Miles in the streets. And she loved, she recognised that that book was, was my finding my voice, I think. So she loved it. Um, and although she never saw um, um, The Secret River, she knew what I was doing, and she said to me, this will be your big book. And I, I thought, oh, nonsense, because to me, at that stage, it was just a complete mess, as <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with that feeling. So the short answer is yes and no.
2: But she took great delight in your doing it. She she, she was a good mother, and she didn't she didn't feel jealous or malicious or anything like that. Not no, even, I could
3: see that she, she, was she wouldn't. Deeply proud, and I think she could see that, that what she had in a way started. I mean, she, gave yeah. Elizabeth Taylor, I mentioned this in the book. When I got sick of kids' books, and I said to her, "What can I read, Mum?" <laughs> she said well try this and it was a book by Elizabeth Taylor I was 12 and Elizabeth Taylor has you know adult, adulterous affairs and abortions and homosexuality <laughs> it all went right well.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, but you knew life was there <laughs> something
3: was happening. so she knew that she planted those seeds and that was kind of enough to to the we all want our children to exceed our things I think well we do
4: now
2: <laughs> golly didn't seem to
4: one up the back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hi. Yeah, I think it's a really important book, um, especially for the army of women who were, have been mothers, I mean, today, but also in the past when they didn't have choices to do other things. And I'd, someone else might make, correct me, but I believe the marriage bar was lifted in 1965. Um, so, Oops, no, I didn't the, the marriage bar so that um, women actually had to leave work um, up until 1965. Yeah, it was pretty late. Yeah, Yeah, not long ago. Mm. But um, uh, the comment I wanted to make uh, is that I've done research on what I call maternal subjectivity, which I ended up drawing from psychoanalysis, which probably is controversial, but I ended up calling it Journey to the Centre of the Earth because trying to get at what is subjectivity. But in psychoanalysis, they talk about the maternal in terms of a foundational relationship because it's the first relationship for any, you know, men and women. And so it's a very important relationship and yet it's been devalued in the way that the work of women's been devalued and I wonder what your comments would be on that.
3: Absolutely. Look, I think that the answer is we should all be writing our mother's stories, our fathers too, but our mothers are the ones that are lost most... Most effectively, partly because it's very hard to point to something. You can say, "Well, my father fought in the war, and this was his rank, etc." So With women, it's a much vaguer thing. But I think everybody in this room should go home, and if your mother is still alive, interview her, and if not, write down whatever you can remember. That's a start. That's a
2: good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Because
1: that sounds.
2: Yeah, <laughs> oh, they're thinking of the homework you've just given them. <laughs> <laughs> Question here. Uh, You spoke about your, your grandmother Dolly being able to conceive something in advance about what was best for your mother in the same way that as
1: society moves forward and we make inventions it's hard to conceive how a petrol
0: engine might change the world, how a connection of computers might change the world. What did your mother conceive of that she was able to pass to you? Gosh,
3: what a good question. Hmm. Ah. Huh. Gee, that's a tough one. Um, in a way, a whole lot of things. Um, look, I think one of the things she gave me, one of the things she gave me as a child was to say, you can't do anything. And being, becoming a writer was obviously one of those things, although I showed no particular talent uh, you know, uh, for a very long time. Uh, maybe that was the foundational truth that she gave me. You have every choice. Your grandmother had almost none. I had some and I made the best of it. For you, you know, the world is your oyster. She didn't say, go and make the most of it, but that's certainly what she meant. When she was, uh, here's a a, a sample of this. Um, When I was a teenager, I remember her saying to me one day, I'm not going to teach you how to cook or keep house or do any of those things. Because if I do, you will become some man's domestic slave. Very <laughs> Now that I think points towards the future. Now we haven't got there yet because I think women are still very much. I don't know whether you will, any of you would agree. We are still pretty much responsible for that domestic stuff. If there are few partnerships where it's really equal, but that's the way of the future, and I think that's one of the things not all. Thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> and I can call now. girl. <laughs> There's somebody up there. Question over here.
5: Yeah. I still have that question. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Um, I want to say thank you for the book. It's, I've read it already and um, enjoyed it thoroughly. And the reason I, one of the reasons I bought the book was I'd read the um, Secret River and loved that. But also because my dad um, was born in 1915 and your mum was born in 1912, and my dad died a number of years ago. But I guess for me. I was hopeful that it would provide insights into my dad's early life as well, even though he was a male and obviously, you know, had a different upbringing. But um, yeah, I felt like it was a real gift um, the way that you were able to describe your mum's early life and through the depression and through those years beyond the war. And um, and you didn't disappoint. I felt like you did that um, in a very descriptive and, and very helpful way. Um, I guess the other thing I just wanted to mention was that I also enjoyed um, the way that you infused a lot of the poetry and stuff that your mum enjoyed. And I guess the question I have is um, was that something that your mum carried right through her life? Like, was that something that you felt was an influence in your life as well uh, in her later yes, years? The,
3: the poetry, the importance of literature. Mum was not at all religious. She had no belief in the afterlife. But what she did believe in was that there was a kind of collective wisdom which was embedded in art in general, but particularly in literature, whereby generations of human beings had sort of thought about the big puzzle in life, which is that we're born and then we die, and that's it, that's it. I mean, it's a a shocking kind of existential thing, which every generation has to puzzle out. Unless you believe in the afterlife or some kind of metaphysical thing, you're stuck with that. Literature for her was her way of making sense of our place in the world kind of um, ontologically. What what does it mean to be human? Um, so the poetry was far more than just, you know, a fun thing. It was a it was her version of the spiritual search. And she's definitely given that to me. But of course my childhood did not make me learn yards and yards of beautiful poetry by heart. And I wish it had. And my children know even less. They don't even read things, let alone learn.
2: Ah-ha, that's Vince, but don't get me out I had an idea there was somebody out of there waving your hand, but stopped. Mm. All right. Right. Yep.
0: Thank you. I'm interested in the notion of voice and your mother's voice and looking for connections between your voice and your mother's voice on the fragments of paper and bringing it into a story. Um, Did you have a – I mean, you've sort of made some decisions about how you'd go about it, but did you sit down and draft it all out first or did you just think it through your head or did you have little – techniques that you use to help you through that that's a very big thing
3: look i wrote 27 drafts of this book and that's, that's probably the answer to your question the answer is i had no idea and i suspect that marion might have a similar yes a similar experience yes you, yes do
2: do i must say every time i start to write a book i think i don't know how to do this <laughs> um and i just start that's the only thing to do i think that's that's the only advice i can give anybody about writing a book you just start and then you Work it out and you chuck things out and you put things in and you try this and it doesn't work and you try that and it does work. And,
3: and having something not work in art is almost as useful as it, as it is in science. If it doesn't work, that's fantastic, that's really useful information and you don't have to go there again. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but if you never try that dead end, you never know. I mean, science is basically uh, just like art a series of failures. Yes. Yes, that's a good point. Funnel you eventually towards some kind of little forward
2: movement. Yeah, yeah. I do think the longer you do it, the sooner you get to recognise the failures. You get quite good at it. I mean, when you <laughs> when you're starting off, you can't bear to admit that anything's a failure. That's not working. You think, oh, but it's so lovely. I just like this, and and you don't want to throw it out. But then I think as you get more used to writing you think oh no it's got to go mm-hmm.
3: yes. yes that's true and you know that there will be more where that came from and yeah you know that be...
2: and that might turn up later in something else who knows
3: or you can kid yourself <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> one, one
1: last question yeah Okay.
3: I thought your book was wonderful too. Um, I've just finished reading it, but I'm really interested in the letter about prunes and dried apricots. Oh. Uh,
6: I have, can you just expand on that? I, the first thing I thought when I heard when I read it was, I'm amazed that they even published it. So um, because it was a woman a woman's concern
3: that the dried fruit was going overseas and not being available. For young children. That's right, and actually, you're quite right. It is amazing. My father said, Well, I've, I've given the line to him because I think he probably would have said scornfully the paper's not interested in the fact that the army had commandeered all the prunes in the country. My mother had a little baby, and at that time, you was supposed to give babies prunes, heaven knows why. I don't think they... <laughs> and the soldiers are sick of them, and uh, one can imagine the waste that ensues, she says. So give the soldiers something like apples or apricots and keep them prunes for the babies. And I've got my father saying, don't be ridiculous, the paper won't publish that, but you're quite right, the paper did publish it. So that's, I mean, was it a slow news day? Uh, <laughs> was the editor of the letters' pages perhaps a woman? Is Possibly. A woman? Hey, now that be an interesting.
2: It's <laughs> The men were all away at the war, oh, and, uh, yeah. Last day, we were spent
4: after...
6: Thank you. <laughs> I'll get you the sign Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Mary, and that was simply marvellous. I I looked around at some of the faces as you were talking and honestly, the enjoyment was writ large. Um, I was was reading the book over the Easter weekend and um, thinking about it and happened to be listening to the radio at some point and I heard uh, the filmmaker Sally Potter say uh, during the course of an interview, most people lead invisible lives. Uh, And I was absolutely struck by that, because in the context of this book, you recognise that this life would have been invisible, the one life, would have been invisible without Kate's um, coming to to write it. And funnily enough, when I resumed reading that night, I picked up on the exact point which Marion has pointed out, which was... um, that uh, Elizabeth Taylor proved what Nance had always known, that the quiet domestic dramas of women's lives might be invisible to men, but they mattered just as much. And it was a wonderful synchronicity of my listening to the radio and reading that. And I just thought that was just so true. Sally Potter went on to say in the course of the interview that there was incredible dramas and the sorts of things that you know, Marion was saying, which is what she likes to write about the dramas of women's lives, those sorts of things. Um so it it was it was a wonderful insight into just uh, what Kate has done here, which is to is to make an extraordinary life which had been invisible, now available to all of us, and so much more there is so much more to take away from this book, uh, the social history of the time but I think a great story is one thing. Actually, bringing it to life is completely another issue. And eight years, 27 drafts, Um, you know, she may have given you your homework, but, (laughs) you know, it is a rare skill to to be able to translate something like that from a few fragments, to imagine that life, to endeavour to be true to what it was and to come away also with a cracking good read. So I, I congratulate you, and I congratulate you too, Marion, on your new book. Um, and uh, once again, please would you thank uh, these two old friends for such a wonderful hour.
0: We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine. ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.